Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. Excited this week to interview Amir Halim, the CEO of Helium. If you're wondering why I'm interviewing a telco tech crypto project on the Micromobility Podcast, please bear with me. The ability to provide super low cost connectivity to these new lightweight electric vehicles will change the game for improving these devices and how we use them. I've been incredibly excited about what the company is up to for a while, and it's great to finally have a chance to sit down and unpack what they're doing. Full disclosure, they were kind enough to sponsor the podcast a little while back, and I've got a few of their hotspots as I seek to learn more about their tech. But mainly, as you can hopefully hear, I just think they're into something and building out the best solution that's available in this space for people who want to connect up their micromobility devices to some form of the internet. In terms of news, Lithuania's Cash for Clunkers program, which allows residents to trade old cars for at least a thousand euros towards a bike, e-bike, scooter or transit pass, has been expanded by popular demand. To date, the program has spent around 5 million euros, with more than half of that being spent on e-bikes, 30% going to electric mopeds or motorbikes and about 10% being used on electric transport tickets. It's estimated to have taken around 8,000 cars off the road. This is one of the more progressive schemes that we've seen. There are a number of cities in Europe that have just been offering grants to simply buy the vehicles, but this is one of the only ones that seeks to explicitly get people out of their cars via a trade-in. We hope to see more of it. In other news, Lime has announced that its riders are coming back. The company just announced it has reached the milestone of 200 million rides. It took 28 months to get to the first 100 million and it was the first to do so, but only 13 months to crack up the next 100 million. And Lime expects to achieve another milestone next year, becoming profitable, a year later than planned. As part of this announcement, they also said that the average vehicle life on their fleet is now two years. Exciting times, and we'll be watching this closely. And with that, here's Amir. All right, and welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today Amir Halim, how, uh, CEO of Helium. How are you today, Amir? I'm good. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me, Oliver. Not at all. Not at all. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very excited about this. Uh, I have been a follower of the Helium project for a long time. I actually heard about it from Fred Wilson on the, from Union Square Ventures. He, uh, he, he emails out a very interesting update every day. Uh, and he'd mentioned you a couple of years ago and, and obviously you're a crypto project and I, I, you know, but it was an intersection that was interesting for me. Uh, it's like the first, one of the first crypto projects that I'd come across that was very real world. And uh, uh, I, I thought maybe what we could do is just for folks um, that are kind of completely new to this, uh, maybe we can uh, talk about what Helium is from the very top level and then we can kind of work down and I'll ask questions as we go along. Um, but yeah. yeah, no, that's cool. Um, Helium is uh, an attempt to try and build a, like a ubiquitous wireless network, right? And and. Uh, I think ubiquity means a couple of things. Like it, it doesn't just mean coverage, although I think I think that's a critical requirement. Like coverage needs to be just sort of everywhere in the same way that we uh, we almost think of cell network coverage being pretty much like practically speaking, just kind of everywhere. Uh, but it also means uh, like this sort of low combination of like low cost, permissionless, um, 
you know, the, the ability for people to just build stuff without having to like engage with anyone, I guess, is the way I think of ubiquitous. Yes. And, and um, I was on some other thing the other day and, and I, I'd like try, I compared it to like, I remember when I, I started getting involved in like software engineering, like web development, especially in the 90s, like you had to like have a license for everything. Like you had to cost you like half a million dollars to build like the worst possible website uh, because you had, because you <laughs> right. had to like yeah. go deal with macromedia, or you, you know, there was some, there was a gatekeeper always somewhere in the in the equation, and that really changed a lot with like the, the it was called the lamp stack. It was like Linux, Apache, MySQL, and PHP, and they they called that the lamp stack, and that changed everything because there was there was no gatekeeper anymore. Like anyone could just download this pile of stuff, figure out how to get it running on a Linux machine of some kind, and. That was it. And that opened the door for a lot of things. It's like how Facebook got built in a dorm room. It's how MySpace got built or Friendster, like any of those things or that that became like sort of foundational things of the Internet effectively got built really as a result of the fact that the lamp stack existed. And I, I think of uh, Helium in the same kind of function. Like our, our goal is not just to create a big coverage network, although that is important. That is a critical like part of it. But it's also to to sort of democratize this ability to like build connected products uh, where you don't have to talk to a cell company or a mobile phone operator or a telco or like you don't have to deal with anyone. I just want to build the mm-hmm. thing and I have the hardware and I'm just going to go do it. And that, that's really what Helium's about. And we're focused today very much on this low power sector of IoT. So some people call it LP WAN, some people just call it IoT. Uh, but primarily like low power, battery powered sensors that send small amounts of data. Um, then we have this sort of crypto economic scheme, which I can get into detail about that encourages the creation and the usage of the network based in a what I think is a pretty unique way. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, so just so that people can kind of get their head around it, it uses LP band. I, I, I know it as LoRaWAN, um, which is, and as far as I understand, it's really good for data packs of sort of, uh, you know, five to 20 kilobits per second. If you need to transmit a small amount of data cheaply, this seems to be the best option that I have found when I've been looking around in the micromobility world for being able to communicate, um, you know, the location of a vehicle or details about a vehicle. Um, and that's certainly like how, I mean, I'd read about it from Fred, but then the reason I've gotten far more interested over in it over time has been that when we're thinking about how to track micromobility vehicles, it uh, seems to be the, the the easiest way to be able to build a solution that will work everywhere in the world. Um, but to, to, to kind of go back to like why that would be the case, can you just explain what LoRaWAN is, how that how that um, has kind of emerged at the moment, and then what Helium has done that's a little bit differently in terms of deploying a network? Yeah, so LoRa uh, and LoRaWAN. So so LoRa is the is the it's called the, like the physical layer. It's like the the actual way that the data gets sent over the over the over the airwaves. Um, it's a technology that was invented by a French company, um, like twenty eleven or twenty twelve or something like that. But it's you know it's as you said it's 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 designed to be an extremely low cost, power efficient way of sending data. Right. So it lives below this. You know, it's in this sub voice realm, right? So, like, for making phone calls and stuff, we've got pretty decent tech, um, LTE, five G, like whatever subsequent things come. Like th- those are those seem to be good, and there's good coverage for those. But if you are in the, uh, 
you know, this sort of like realm where I want to build a sensor that tracks the location of something and it has a battery that lasts years and, you know, costs me a dollar a year to operate. You know, th there isn't really anything like that, right? There isn't a technology that fits the, the bill there. And it's a combination of a, of a technology problem, right? There are no cellular technologies that work that way in terms of battery life. And an economic problem in the sense that there are some telcos that have built LoRaWAN networks, um, but they're really expensive to use, right? Because telcos build networks one way, which is that they pay for building the network and then they charge people to use it to, to re recover the cost of building the network. And yeah, so, I mean, there's a LoRaWAN network here in New Zealand. Yeah, because uh, I went I, when I researched when I heard about you, I was like, who else is building LoRaWAN? Yeah, there's, there's several. It's still a dollar forty or a dollar fifty a month just right. for a line charge. Which that's, to me is like, you know, that's what you'd pay for a 3G connection. Right. Almost, and it makes sense you know? when you think about the, like the, the cost of deploying telecom equipment is like not just the equipment itself, right? It's like the union cost of like getting a guy up on a ladder to like install the thing. It's like rolling a truck out to the place. And like, there's like so much cost involved in like deploying a, a physical network if you're paying for it all. That the only way they can figure out how to make sense of this is to like try and charge people a reasonable amount of money to use the network. And so that has been the really the biggest problem because as you said, there's a LoRaWAN network in New Zealand. There's several, you know, there's one in France. Like South Korea has a huge one. It, it's not it's not due to a lack of technology as much as like an economic problem. And so, mm. so helium solves the last part of that in a very interesting way. I mean, it solves a couple of different problems, but really the 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 reason for helium to exist or to or to do something interesting is that we have taken the approach of you know, you could think of it almost like Airbnb or Uber or something, right? Where they basically said, it doesn't make sense to have these like singular giant hotel companies trying to build hotels everywhere in the world. It, wouldn't it be interesting if people that just happen to have real estate in those places was able to like basically offer themselves on a marketplace that people could use? And I think at the time it was like an insane idea. When I first heard about Airbnb, I thought this was the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Like who is going you know, <laughs> who, who to like, you know, allow a random stranger to stay in their house? Like what if it gets trashed? Like, you know, what, what about yeah. all the, the, the obvious things that, that not smart people think about like me? And, you know, now, that they, now more people stay in Airbnbs than the top five hotel companies combined, right? And so, yeah. And so Helium is like that for wireless. It's like, why would you want to, like, why should there be like telcos that go around spending the money to build this infrastructure when everyone already has access to infrastructure, right? Like you have a house, you have an internet connection and you have access to electricity. Like those are really all the things that you need in order to operate as a, as a cell tower, as a, as a mobile network yes. tower. So what Helium is, is like sort of a self-organizing system that allows people to do that, right? Like you could buy a thing called a hotspot, which is a, uh, it's like a LoRaWAN gateway. It looks like a Wi-Fi access point or something like that, but it's also a cryptocurrency miner. And that, that's, the, that's the weird part of it, right? Is that the way this becomes a self-organizing system is that hotspots, hotspot or hosts are incentivized to operate hotspots because they earn cryptocurrency to do it. Um, yes. And that's what's interesting about this, right? Is that we design, we've devised a scheme where we are sort of solving the cold start problem of networks like this, right? Where you can't build, you can't encourage people to build a network absent millions of devices to use the network. And there aren't going to be millions of devices to use a network until there is a network, right? And so you, you, have, you have to solve that somehow. And, you know, once I got my head around Bitcoin and once we like started to think about that as a way to solve that problem, it's like by far the most elegant way of solving it, which is that you encourage people to 
build the network in the early days by giving them effectively a stake and ownership of the network, right? They are, they're earning this currency, which represents like a stake in the network. Um, and that is their reward for building it, you know, in the absence of there being actual traffic. And then when there's lots and lots of traffic, they get paid that way too, right? Like when people actually yes. need to use the network, that's the other way they get paid. So that's really the invention. It's like, it's really all about economics, right? There's a lot of technology there that, that, that makes that all go and make that all work. And there's, there's some different things that we did around LoRaWAN that I think are clever. But really, it's an economic solution, right? It's a, it's a way for us to be out of the way and for the network to grow and populate itself and for companies, you know, like Lime and others to just start using the network without having to talk to us and for it to be absurdly cheap uh, because it was built by people putting it in their house rather than telcos spending billions of dollars uh, on the infrastructure. Yeah, so, so, so I kind of want to dig into that because you've got, um, you actually know what your data costs are going to be. So can you, can you kind of talk through what a data cost is? If someone was to build something on Helium, what is the data cost and how do they buy access to the network in that regard? Yeah, so there's a, there are two cryptocurrencies in the network um, and one of them is called a data credit. And you could think of the data credit like a, a cell phone minute or an airline mile or you know something like that, right? It's like a, it's like a virtual balance that gets you access to a thing. Um, on the Helium network, one data credit allows you to send 24 bytes of data. And so just, as, just to, to be more precise about that, like 24 bytes, you can easily fit like a GPS coordinate in, and speed and altitude. You know, it's like 11 bytes. Um, so you can send like a decent amount of data as far as a sensor is concerned, right? Like you, you can't send an image or a video or, you know, something. It's like not designed for that, right? It's designed purely for, for, low power, for small amounts of data and low power things. And one data credit costs point zero 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 one dollars. Like that's the, that's kind of the, the cost. So to send, you know, if you had a device, I forget the exact numbers, but if you had a device sending something like a hundred times a day, um, it would cost about a dollar a year to, to operate, right? And and you can buy these data credits from us. You can buy them from anyone else on the network. Like the, you convert the other currency, so the the currency that you earn for operating a hotspot is called HNT. Um, you can convert HNT into data credits. Um, so you can either do that through us, or if you know someone that has HNT, you can have them convert data credits for you. Or if, if you are a miner, if you are a hotspot operator yourself, you can convert your own HNT into data credits. Um, so it's very permissionless in that way, right? Like we have companies and people using the network that have never interacted with us ever, right? They've just mm -hmm. you know acquired data credits through some means, and now they're just sending stuff over the network. Um, and it's, yeah, it's cheap to the point where I, I don't think you could ever find a reasonable competitor at that price. Like there's just no way of competing with that. Yeah. I mean, and, and the, I mean, the, the, when you talk about a dollar a year for data costs, I mean, so for reference, everybody, uh, when I was looking at this and talking to micro mobility operators who are building owned e-bikes, the only option that they can have, if they're building a bike that's meant to be going global, um, they have to go and install a SIM card that's relevant for the country. They have to come up with an, like a, an arrangement with that company, with the, with the kind of the, the cell or cellular company in the country that they're going to be sending the bike to. And then they have to pay probably like 30 or 40, $50 a year in terms of line charges and data costs and all that sort of stuff. Plus the battery drain on these things end up being quite significant. Um, so when you go from, Hey, you know, that's, that's something that's in an e-bike, uh, an owned e-bike, and you can go to something that's a dollar a year and the battery life is a lot longer. It's just game changer. But 
talk me through the network because that's the part that, you know, you talk about the sort of like, oh, you've managed to incentivize these people to go out and deploy these hotspots and build this, um, this helium network. You know, I had, uh, when I had given a, uh, well, I've connected you to a, a couple of uh, micromobility operators and they said, look, the network is growing incredibly quickly, but it's not in all the countries that we want it to be in. How, can you talk through the growth of the Helium network since you've started? Yeah, so we, we launched it in July last year, so in, in 2019, and, and we launched only in one city at the start. We were in Austin, Texas, um, and there was a couple of reasons we did that. We, like, we didn't know how this was going to go in, in any way. Like, we had no idea how many people would be interested in buying one of these things. You know, as a U.S. company, there's a lot of rules and regulations around what you can and cannot say when it comes to cryptocurrency. You know, so we, we couldn't talk about ROI or profit. Like, can't say any of those words. Like, can't even go near them, right? And so you're basically advertising a device that earns something and yes. it may or may not be worth anything, right? And so that's a, that's a difficult proposition from a marketing point of view to explain well. Um, and so we sold 150, which was our limit, in, into Austin, and we did it that way just so we could sort of see how it went, like what were the issues that we would run into. And there were a lot of issues that, that we ran into. Um, and then we opened up in October last year to let anyone purchase. Um, and so it's grown it, d- during that time. It, it's now about there's about now about 12,000 hotspots actually running on the network. Um, there's something like 35,000 have been sold so that the gap is, you know, they haven't been able to fulfill them all. We used to be the only manufacturer of hotspots. We are now, you know, just one of several manufacturers of these hotspots. A company called Rack just started to sell them a few weeks ago. They, I think they sold something like 6,000 in, in two or three hours uh, after, after going on sale. And so the network is starting yeah. to grow, grow quickly. It's mostly in the U.S., but now starting to grow in Europe. Uh, there's something like 1,400 different cities covered, uh, at least three or four million square miles of network coverage. We have sort of community, like, outsourced mapping efforts going on, you know, where people have like little handheld trackers, you know, that, that look like this or something, you know, mm-hmm. one, wandering around, like mapping the coverage areas. Um, and so, yeah, it's going very, very fast. It's, it's growing now quickly in Europe, which is, you know, we just started selling into in, in September, October. Uh, and the real, really, I think that number could be 100,000 if, if we had enough gateways or if we had enough hardware, basically, to sell. Like We have been the bottleneck in terms of uh, enabling the network to grow faster now that we are sort of enabling and onboarding more third parties, like we're starting to sort of remove ourselves as the bottleneck. But certainly the, the, the network growth has been phenomenal and ex- wildly exceeded my expectations for this year. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's, again, I think the thing that's interesting is that, uh, you know, maybe in the way that like Apple didn't want to roll out the 5G on the phone because it was you know, kind of too early. Um, you know, it's, it's about making sure that you've got that network coverage and then ensuring that it's going to be there consistently. So that, for example, if you are selling an e-bike, you know that the e-bike that you're selling into, you know, to someone who lives in some small town in North Carolina is going to have some level of coverage and actually that this will work as a, as a solution. I think the part that really uh, struck me around Helium was the you know, someone is economically incentivized. If, 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 say, for example, they sell it into some town in North Carolina that doesn't have any coverage, but they want there to be coverage in their town, they can work out how to, I mean, they can themselves either deploy a network so that they can provide this coverage for their bike, or they can say, hey, there's no coverage in this town and I would like there to be coverage in this town. And someone can very easily and very cheaply come along and provide coverage in that town. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Um, so so in, there's, a, there's a company called Conserve 
um, that uses the network. And they are a sort of fine art and collectible monitoring company. Like they work with museums and like high net worth individuals that have connect collections. And they needed coverage. I think it was in like Birmingham, Alabama or somewhere like that where we, where we had no coverage. Um, and a hotspot operator bought like 100 or 200 you know, hotspots and covered the entire Birmingham so that Conserve uh, would have a network to use. And so that, that kind of stuff is awesome. Like, and I, I think the relatively low cost of hotspots, which will, you know, I think, continue to drop. Like I would expect that we have a sub $100 hotspot next year. They're, they're 250 now. It may even be you know, sub $60 or something. I, I don't know. They can certainly get cheap. Uh, but the low cost of these devices and the financial incentive to like install it um, means that like building network coverage is not not complicated, right? Like it's easy to it's easy to create new coverage areas um, if they don't exist. And I think that on its own is an interesting model. That there have been other startups that have tried to build low power networks, like companies like Sigfox, for example. Um, but they've taken the sort of operator model, and there have been gaps in the coverage, and there haven't really been good ways for people to fill in the gaps, right? And so having that that ability, I think, is is really a game changer because it allows the coverage to grow very organically where it's actually needed rather than, you know, just where people might may think it might be needed. Yeah. Um, we're like almost 20 minutes in. We've hardly even talked about micromobility, but I really <laughs> do want to get into this. So um, the, the, the relationship between obviously really low cost data and low battery requirement data um, and micromobility strikes me as, um, you know, you're solving for a problem that I think, I think a lot of people when they're thinking about e-bikes or scooters don't necessarily, um, especially in the kind of own space, haven't really thought was a big deal, but if all of a sudden it becomes a possibility. So can you talk through, um, what, what you've seen enabled or what you're thinking would be enabled? Yeah, I mean, the, the main thing that we've, you know, we are in conversations with a, a, a number of uh, bike manufacturers. You know, I remember we were talking to Boosted Boards who are unfortunately gone now. But, you know, the, the, the application, I think, was always the same. It was, a, it was primarily a theft recovery tool, right? Well, that, was, that was part one. And then part two was almost like, you know, a Fitbit for the, for the thing. Right, like how far have I, how far have I gone? And, and there are other tools that do some of those pieces, um, but the, you know they're generally expensive. Like if you wanted a, you sort of have two sets of options, right? Like you have cellular if if you can stomach the cost, right? And in some cases you can, right? Like on a five, ten, twenty thousand dollar e bike, not sure I care about it costing an extra hundred dollars, you know, to have a cell module and it, you know, costing ten bucks a month or whatever to know where it is. It's just not a big deal on a on a a thing of that value, right? Um, but on, on cheaper stuff, it is a completely different equation, right? And so you've only really got two ways of, of knowing where something is or knowing anything about it, right? One is cellular, uh, and we know what those costs are. And those are both the network costs, but also the hardware cost. You've got like the cell modules are like reasonably expensive. You need a SIM card, as you pointed out, for each thing. And that has like a one-time cost. And, you know, so the, the aggregate cost of doing things at small volumes, and when I say small volumes, I mean like sub-Apple volumes mm-hmm. in, in cellular is expensive because you, you only really get to make it cheap by being Apple. Um, and on the other end, you've got Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and stuff like that, which is, you know, what I would consider like short range technologies, right? Like when you're in range of a house or whatever, you can, you can rely on those things. And there's really nothing in between. And so things like skateboards and boosted boards and, scoot, you know, if you're a fleet operator, like someone like Lime, 
Um, like there isn't a technology that exists that allows you to do something like theft recovery. Like what happened to it? Like where did it go? Um, and then also the, the, the sort of usage stats in an aggregate way, like one of the bike companies we're talking about has an e-bike line. You know, they want to use it for diagnostics, right? Like they have, you know, motors that have a certain number of hours, rated for a certain number of hours, need to be serviced after a certain amount of time, batteries that last over a certain interval, Coming in to be charged a certain amount of times, you know, and so those are that's the kind of data that a customer is not necessarily incentivized to like gather, right? It's not very they don't care about that information. You care about it as the totally. manufacturer, but the 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 user may not care. And so there's that sort of like passive kind of data collection that becomes possible when it's cheap enough to like deploy the solution. Uh, and so that's kind of the range. It's like theft recovery, Fitbit, and sort of diagnostic, um, and depending on the the, the sort of cost of the application like radically changes like whether you would think about helium as a solution or whether you're just sort of fine with cell like again with an e-bike that's expensive has a big battery on board that's being charged all the time you know may, maybe cell is fine in that case right like maybe that's not a problem yep. um, but in other in other applications you know that's just just way too expensive or the power consumption is way too high or whatever it is yeah um this, I hadn't even thought about the diagnostic aspect, but of course that makes a huge amount yeah. of sense. Um, these things all have the, CAN bus on board and they're like transmitting a ton, like gathering a ton of data. Right. And so it's, it's, yeah. it's great. Well, also just, you know, uh, the other, the other part about it as well is, uh, one of the big problems that we've identified in the privately owned space is the fact that, um, and this is in the consulting work that I've been doing with some governments has been that privately owned micromobility, it's, you cannot collect uh, mileage data. So we have no idea mm. how how many kilometers or miles are being done by privately owned e-bikes. We know it for cars and we know it for mopeds because those have to have their odometers read when they come in for checks and things. Um, but as a result, it means that we have no uh, idea of the growth of the, uh, like VMT or VKT that's going on. And I don't quite know how you would take that mileage data from a privately owned thing and get it in, into the hands of someone transport planners who can then say you know like oh well we know that there's this number of kilometers that are being done but it's more it's more the fact that the data is being collected in the first place and so there might be an opportunity for that which I mean, at the moment doesn't even get covered I, th I mean i think that is the, the the whole premise of iot right is like that that you should be able to like gather data on anything right it should be yes. it should be possible to gather data from things and primarily things that are in the real world that that we don't have the ability to instrument today. Like with, with computers and stuff, like you've got all the instrumentation in the world. And I think that's what the big data movement really was, right? It's like the sort of formalization of all of that. But in IoT, like, you you know, where I live in California, for example, like we, we don't really know anything about air quality on, as, as a, as on, the, on the whole, right? We have like wildfires now pretty often. Um, and so you're seeing companies like Purple Air and like other, you know, sort of privately held startups basically having to like come up with solutions for this right where you can buy like a wi-fi air quality sensor and stick it outside and like that is your like air quality like information right now right and so that that kind of stuff always bothers me because it feels like that should just be a well-solved problem like we should know everything about everything all the time and it should be cheap enough and possible to like gather all that data and it's it's really it's really just like the economics of building infrastructure that make that hard and so that's that's sort of that's one of the main things that I hope happens as a result of helium is that it becomes possible to monitor like everything uh, and in the context of you know of what you're talking about that would be sort of kilometers ridden 
Uh, and it, another, the, the other extreme end would be like, what's the air quality like in a place, right? Because we don't have any way of monitoring that outside with a battery right now. And so I think that the possibilities are, are pretty endless if you, if you have the infrastructure for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so you started out with LoRaWAN as the, as a sort of the basic, uh, tech. Can you talk through the selection for that over other kind of, um, when you were thinking about like the different options that were available for being able to broadcast data and why you chose LoRaWAN in the end? Yeah, for, for a while we weren't actually. We, we, we were building on a different set of technology. So there, there are other, uh, so LoRa is a type of uh, modulation and there are other modulations. And so, so we were using a thing called GFSK, which is uh, this frequency shift keying that's very common. It's, it's used in lots of other applications. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that has improved over time is that uh, the silicon has gotten better and it's gotten cheaper. Um, and then there have been other sort of software techniques applied on top that make it more resilient to like interference um, and, you know, more likely to be received without error. And so most of, you know, for, for two years, we, we were developing actually on a non-LoRa based solution. It worked very similarly. There was still very low power RF based things, similar kind of range. We had built a very fancy version of the hotspot that, that could could do all of this. And I, I think really for me it was Laura has a pretty good head start. That's the bottom line. Like like Laura Wan has become relatively ubiquitous in the IoT space. There are several vendors and manufacturers building both the gateway hardware, so the hot you know the hotspot equivalent but also the sensors, right? You know, so, so there's like thousands upon thousands of different LoRaWAN sensors, you know, in the micro mobility space, there's one that fits in a handlebar or that looks like a, you know, rear light on a bike or, you know, there's all sorts of manufacturers already doing this. Um, and right, so really, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, all sorts of stuff. I mean, they've got like, they've, they're way ahead on like figuring that out. And if we had used, uh, you know, a GFSK based solution, like no one is anywhere close to that, right? Like there hasn't been yeah. a there hasn't been a standard that that has been adopted that way, um, and so you'd have to push everything, right? You'd have to push both the coverage side getting built out, but also try going basically to all the LoRaWAN sensor manufacturers and saying, hey, why don't you build another version of your thing? You know that that works this way, you know. And just as I thought about that, it just sounded ridiculous. Like it was a suicidal. Yeah. Oh, you know, this is really pushing shit uphill at that point. You know? Yeah, it really is, right? It's and so yeah, yeah. being able to adopt a an existing protocol i think has paid dividends for us uh and will will only accelerate like so today the hotspot is like 250 bucks but there are laura wan gateway manufacturers out there with like a 60 dollar version of a gateway right and so we are we are doing the work to allow those things to be able to join the network and then all of a sudden the growth should be massive right if you can add like you know access points for 60 dollars onto onto the network you know, then it, it starts to get huge. And that's only possible due to the fact that like something like LoRaWAN already has an established base and like market share and manufacturers. And so, and on top of that, it's an excellent technology. Like there, there are things about it that I wish were different or better, um, mm. but the range is extraordinary. Um, yeah. So the range it, is what, how far from a, for, for a hotspot? It just, I mean, I hate to give the answer of it depends, but you know, we, we've seen anything from, you know, there's a guy in LA in Los Angeles County who looks like he's covering about a thousand square miles with a single hotspot on top of a roof. Um, and so that's like the most extreme example. And then there are others that are in, you know, in the middle of Manhattan in New York that maybe get, you know, a few square blocks or something around where they're at, where they're at. So it really just depends just on like, little, like on a standard hotspot. 
with a kind of little yeah. aerial thing. Yeah. Like it would look, look you know, like, like this or something, right? With like just a little antenna yeah. sticking out of the top. And so it really just yeah. depends. It's like so how much... folks referencing, because they can't see it, it's about uh, <laughs> three centimeter long, or, four, or I don't know, maybe five, six centimeter long antenna yeah. on the back something, of the some, little... Something like that, yeah. That and, it, and so yeah. it just depends like how many, you know, how much stuff is in the way, right? Between you, between you and the sensor, right? Like how many buildings are there? How many trees are there? And so the higher up you get it, generally the better. Um, and so the most extreme distance we've seen is close to 100 miles, like point, point to point. Um, and the shortest distance we've seen is like, let's say half a mile conservatively, right? If there's a lot of stuff in the way. So really, really variable. Um, some of the hosts in the community have gotten, in, in, gotten serious. Like they've got like 12 foot antenna, you know, on the, on the roof of their house. Um, you know, so they've started to take it like they are, they're basically like a telco, like they're a mini, you know, mini operator. Right. And so, uh, it really depends, but you, at minimum, well, you they sound like expect. a professional Airbnb host, like a per- super host. You pretty know? much. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> so it's, yeah, yeah. But worst case, like half a mile, something, something like that would be the yeah. lowest end and which is still pretty good. Yeah, no, that, that's, um, that's really interesting because I wanted to ask the question, which is the, what's the competition look like? Who else is in this space? Because I know that like. So Amazon Sidewalk is talking about. Did they end up picking Lora as well? Yeah, they've actually done it, but like they have three different technologies. Uh, so they have the technology that we would have used, you know, the FSK based stuff. Uh, they have Bluetooth and they have Lora as well. Okay, and that's uh, so for folks. Uh, so that uh, that's the ring. They're using that on Ring, right? That's the way that they're going to yeah. deploy this. So Sidewalk is Amazon's efforts to solve a similar kind of problem, right? Which is that there's, there's no sort of longer range version of a non-cellular network, right? And so um, they today have rolled it out in uh, some of the ring floodlights, you know, so the outdoor camera light things that they have. Uh, it's not LoRaWAN, it's like a different protocol on top of LoRa. So it uses the same LoRa hardware, but it's a different network protocol. It's like the sidewalk protocol or whatever it's gonna be called. Um, same sort of goal though, right? It's like they want to enable applications that they can't enable, right? Like the, there's a dog collar product that they have called Fetch, for example, that they're supposed to launch. Uh, I know they have aspirations for doing other kinds of things, presumably like package tracking or something would be, you know, one of the applications for deliveries. Yeah. And, you know, just, it, it's very validating. Like it's on the one hand, it's sort of scary to have a competitor like Amazon in the, in the, in the arena, but on the other hand, it's very validating around the problem, right? Because Amazon obviously doesn't have a financial problem there, right? Like they can afford to pay whatever the hell they want, presumably for 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 network connectivity, and they also presumably have tremendous leverage over a carrier to get better rates. But that's not that still doesn't solve the problem, right? And and so yes. they felt like they needed to build the whole thing the way that we're doing it. Um, we don't have much intel about how that's going, or or you know, we we know a bunch of the different companies that are looking at using sidewalk and like we i think we're all talking to like roughly the same the same sphere um and then in terms of competitors really it's really telcos right like it's the only other entity that i would really be concerned with which is you know at&t verizon you know in the in the u.s orange in in europe and vodafone and those kind of guys that are building low power networks of their own None of them are quite as low power as LoRa. So there's a, there's a cellular mm-hmm. technology called NB-IoT that is gaining some momentum. Um, but it's, you know, it has the same problem. Still relatively expensive to use. The hardware is still kind of expensive. The battery life 
much better than like regular LTE, but still not great. Um, yeah. But that's the competitive space. It's like you've got some startups like Sigfox, who I don't, I, I just, a massive amount of respect for Sigfox. I just don't think their model can work. It's just it, for all the reasons that we've talked about. Um, and there were others that had the same model that went out of business, like Ingenue. Um, and then, you know, Amazon, and then you've got sort of the, the telcos, I think is sort of the competitive, the competitive space. Well, the other one I was also going to bring up was uh, Apple and the Find My service. Yeah. Because that's, I mean, there's not that much detail that's come out about it, but they did announce it. Um, I guess they, they opened, well, they opened up the Find My thing earlier this year, though, as far as I understand, no details have still been released about it. Um, yeah. But can you talk through how they're thinking about that, at least? I mean, I can only explain what I understand of it, which is that um, they are using an approach that I would say is similar to something like Tile. Um, yes. Different technology, like they're using ultra-wideband um, instead of Bluetooth. Uh, so ultra-wideband is much uh, much higher bandwidth, as you can guess from the name, which, which, which ideally would help locate things more precisely. And we're talking about like centimeters of precision at this point rather than tens of feet. And the trade-off, as with all things radio, is is the range, right? So it's going to be a very short range kind of finding technology. And, I, and I, I'm guessing that the approach would be similar to, to Tile, where they would hope that in aggregate there are enough iPhones knocking around, you know, sort of forming this crowd network that you can actually find things. And in dense cities, that might work great, you know, like San Francisco or New York or something like that. That's probably viable where you've got hundreds of iPhones on a city block all the time. Um, in broader areas, feels very, very difficult to pull that off because you, you, the range of Bluetooth, as you know, is probably like 50 feet realistically or less. I wouldn't yeah. expect ultra wideband to be much better than that, probably worse in a lot of cases. Um, so it really depends on the application. If you don't really need anything resembling real time and you're just sort of okay with knowing where it is ne the next time someone goes near it with an iPhone, yeah, maybe it's fine, you know, like, but again, it's a little bit hard to talk about because you don't, we don't know anything about it. Like they, they've literally said nothing about it beyond, you know, beyond the fact that there's something. Yeah. That, and, and that's when I've been exploring the space of what, what are the options available in micromobility it struck me with fine my that it is like you say, and, and there's nothing there to incentivize someone to go and look up, look for something or find, you know, if you're in an area with no coverage, you're not going to go leave your iPhone there so that if something drives past, you know, it's like, oh, it can upload the, the data that this thing has been here uh, yeah. versus a sort of a longer range, something that's, you know, $60 to put something on a network and I'm willing to go and deploy out, out and cover a bunch of area that probably isn't going to get a heap of traffic, but... It's the fact that I can claim these areas and say that, you know, that, that, that I'm going to be, in, that, you know, that these, these areas are, are mine and I'll be rewarded in, in, in some sort of, with some sort of incentive for that. Um, I, mean, I, I think the incentive, I mean, the, the, the mechanism is going to be the same as what Amazon did, which is basically like one day it's just on by default, right? And if you, yes. <laughs> if you don't turn it off, uh, and a lot of people are very pissed off by that, by the way. If you look at the, the Ring subreddit, you know, a, a lot of people are very upset by the fact that like a new hidden option is just on by default, you, you know, and you're like sharing your network without explicit permission. Um, and so I'd be interested, but I, I'm guessing that's how the Apple would work as well, is that by default that that's on. Um, and you would have to actively turn it off if you didn't want, you know, if you didn't want it to happen. Mm. That's very interesting as well. Um, 
Yeah, well, I guess an area to watch uh, for sure. Yeah. Um, uh, it, so on on an earlier podcast, uh, so you have a podcast uh, for the Helium Project called the the Hotspot, which I highly encourage. If you're enjoying this conversation, you will very much enjoy the Hotspot. It's a it's a it's a bit of a nerdy conversation, but uh, really excellent. You guys go into a fair amount of depth. But uh, uh, can you, you you'd mentioned that um, this model for building out um, uh, networks is sort of if it works for low Rawan in theory, it can work for others. And you talked about 3G uh, as being like another thing or 5G as being another thing that you could, in theory, de- start to deploy networks um, using a kind of Helium backend, but uh, allowing anybody who's got 3G assets to be able to put them onto a kind of a 3G version of Helium. Can you talk about why you think that, why, why that might be an option going forward and anything else? Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, we have a bunch of different conversations going with different telcos right now about this. Um, And I think 5G is probably like the tipping point where the existing model is no longer feasible, right? So with with the sort of millimeter wave 5G, as they call it, like the the real 5G, like the the high bandwidth, low latency version of 5G that that everyone thinks of, I think, when they they talk 5G, um, it's really hard to deploy it. Right, the range of the 5G base stations is tiny compared to LTE, um, and so we're talking about like windows will will affect the actually humidity will affect the the range, and certainly you couldn't go through a building, couldn't go through a tree, um, and so the range, you know, the density of 5G base stations acquired to build a millimeter wave network is like thousands of times more than it is for an LTE network. Uh, and so we are having these various conversations with telcos now because they're like, well, there's no way we can actually deploy five millimeter wave 5G. It's like impossible. And so now what they've started to do, there's another 5G called sub six, which is, you know, kind of more like LTE, right? The range is like similar to LTE, but it doesn't have the super high bandwidth and the super low latency that the real 5G has, the millimeter wave stuff. And so they're like, well, we can't deploy millimeter waves. It's like impossible, right? It's like too expensive. They're going to spend billions of dollars per city just to, you know, just to actually deploy it. And so they're looking at what, we, what we've done and are starting to wonder whether you could do the same kind of thing to build different types of networks, right? So if you could imagine for a second that there was a hotspot that was a 5G base station, that could you incentivize, like, would people deploy a 5G network for telcos, you know, and get rev share effect- effectively for operating the thing, right? And, and a, an iPhone or a Galaxy or whatever Android device you know, wouldn't know the difference, right? Like you would still appear to be connected to like Vodafone or whoever. Uh, but in fact, you're actually connected through a bunch of like residentially powered, you know, base stations. I think it's fascinating. And recently we saw the Freedom Fi. I don't know if you've heard of that company, but Freedom Fi announced, you know, their sort of version of a product that makes it easy to deploy LTE networks in the CBRS band. So in the States, we have a thing called CBRS, the Citizens Band Radio Service. Um, Facebook has this project called Magma, which is a, a open source LTE gateway, effectively, and Freedom Fi is like a is a technology built on top of that. Um, and so I, I just think you're going to see this more. It just becomes obvious. It's like why would I why would I have to like do this with Verizon, Vodafone, Orange, you know, wh- whoever. I don't even can't even remember who the telcos are in New Zealand. 
Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, we have Vodafone and we have Spark, which is the local, which is the local operator. But I think that that's a really relevant point, right? Which is it made sense when you could deploy one tower on like a 3G or even you know the older the GPRS or whatever it was. Um, yeah. Was uh, to do it with um, one tower that could cover a kind of a whole town. And then as you get smaller and smaller and smaller, the densities start getting so much that like, it makes no point to have multiple different operators all, you know, crowding in and doing exactly the same thing. But that's where the, that's, and that's part and part why I think it's so interesting, this idea of a kind of the crypto backend um, to be able to facilitate the, you know, one person operating it, but then everybody else being able to like eat, instantly trade across each other because you've got the trust in the background. Yeah, um, no, it's, it's so be, fascinating. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it, yeah. it's the only way, if you think about it, if you had it, if I told you a 5G, 5G millimeter wave base station had a range of like 150 feet, right? So something like that. Like, how would you ever build a network like that, right? Like you, you, you wouldn't, right? You would have to have some other, you'd have to have some other way of doing this. And I, and I think that's, like, I, I believe that you'll never see a 5G millimeter wave network deployed by a carrier anywhere in the world that is, that is anywhere close to the coverage of an LTE network. And, and that's why it would just cost at least hundreds of millions, but probably more like billions of dollars, even for small areas, you know, like cities or counties. And, and I just, I can't see why anyone would ever do that. And so this is an interesting, an interesting alternative and it will result in a different business model for the carrier, right? Like they will have to give up a significant percentage of their, of, of their business to, to effectively like accommodate these hosts that are building the network for them. Um, and so it'll be, it's just going to be interesting, but until we have like really open access, like wireless spectrum, you have to kind of go through these these carriers like they are they are still the gatekeepers like they own the customers they own the spectrum um but as that starts to change you know with things like cbrs which is already supported on most of these phones um it starts to become possible that you could just skip them completely like wh- why even why even have verizon in the equation once the network's got big enough and, and dense enough well yeah yeah Yes, you're asking very good questions, and we and I I kind of wish that we had Horace on because Horace, uh, my co-host, is uh, his his background is in uh, yeah. in, in telco and, and, and cellular. Um, it, I, I imagine the question he would probably ask now is um, uh, along the lines of um, so the permission. Well, I don't know what he'd ask. <laughs> I'll, I'll work out how to get him on at some point, and we can have another conversation maybe in a year or so. But um, the 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 thing that I'm the, the, in terms of permissionless. Um, the thing that really uh, was interesting when I've been talking to other people who are kind of looking to maybe build on this is the fact that they say, look, we build it once. We don't have to deal with any carriers or anything. And it, and all of a sudden that kind of unlocks. Can you give examples? Maybe if you've got any in the micromobility world, that's great. But any of this where you've got, um, you know, what that unlocks, as you say, to sort of the equivalent of the lamp example that you kind of gave in the beginning? Um, of stuff that's getting built because it doesn't require you to have to go and deal yeah, with a I bunch mean, of stuff. The cool thing is we actually don't know what some of it is. You know, you know because, because it's permissionless in nature like this, we actually don't know what who the, who some of the companies are, what some of the devices are, because um, they never really had to ask us at, at any point to, to join the network or do anything. Um, but, you know, I, I think the cost is a, is a, is a game-changing thing. Um, you know, so for example, there's a startup called Agulus that's using the network. They're, they're building one of my other favorite use cases, which is like a precision agriculture uh, solution. Because again, now it's possible to like instrument an entire, you know, 
thousand hectare you know farm with with sensors because both the sensors are cheap enough and the connectivity is cheap enough um so you can start to do interesting things there that i, I think were not feasible before I, I remember having this conversation like verizon was involved in it and it was like you know something like 700 dollars per quarter acre was the cost of like instrumenting like a, a, a farm using whatever yeah. using whatever technology it was that verizon was was trying to trying to get the customer to buy and that's just like you know orders of magnitude too high like it's in you know you can't these guys have like thousands and thousands of like hectares you know like you can't have 700 dollars per quarter acre be a reasonable be a reasonable cost and so that's the kind of stuff that gets unlocked uh, and as i said like we don't even know who some of the guys are we just see sensors on the network and they haven't really had to engage with us a, a lot of the time they, they just get in there and start building stuff um, you know, there's a guy like counting like coffee beans because he owns a coffee roaster. You know, like, we did, we had never heard of that use case. All of a sudden, we saw it on Twitter, um, and you know, so they're just that kind of stuff is what I think is awesome. Like, it shouldn't have to come through us. Like, we we aren't we aren't the sales arm of the network. Like, of course, our job is to like try and get more stuff to use the network. Um, but the fact that it sort of lives lives on its own and anyone can use it, I think, is what ultimately will make it win. It's like you, you don't need us. We're just uh, we just happen to be a bunch of engineers building stuff on it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Um. <laughs> I mean, it's like the internet, right? It's like TCP/IP. Yeah, no, exactly. DNS I'm just like, yeah, you couldn't you couldn't yeah. predict that uh, that that would get to Uber, that that's yeah, where, I mean, or that would get to Snapchat. I mean, right. I still don't understand Snapchat. I mean, you need all these foundational technologies, like you need TCP/IP and BGP and DNS and HTTP and TLS, like all these like foundational protocols that make it possible for the internet to like exist and they're all free right and and um and that's amazing and so this is this is sort of like a layer up from that right where you need physical infrastructure that you can actually use and right now those gates are controlled by telcos and we we wish they weren't yes yeah i hear you um so just uh in terms of where we're at right now we've got twelve thousand hotspots on the network we've got um uh, we're now getting to the part where, you know, the, there are bill of material, as you said, there were things like you can put, um, uh, helium, uh, like a little helium transponders into things like handlebars or in the back of brake lights. Um, so yep. uh, are those, are those for sale yet? Are we at the point where that's now available in market or are we getting close to that or? Yeah, no, some of these things just exist. You, you know, LoRaWAN has been a weird space, right? Because there's been, there's been some sensor companies that exist. Um, and there haven't really been great networks for them to use most of the time, right? And so there's a bunch of like almost dormant technology that's just sort of sitting there that that can now be enabled. Uh, and so yeah, the, the bike tracking stuff is—I forget the name of the company. I'll, I'll find it and send it to you after. But uh, they, they have a whole line of of LoRaWAN and Sigfox uh, bike tracking products, and like goes in the handlebars and light and goes on a seat, and like they've got all sorts of different things. Um, and all of that stuff just works on, on Helium. Like you can quite easily yep. add any of those LoRaWAN sensors. It's fully compatible. Um, so that whole universe, like if you ever find any LoRaWAN sensor, like it does work already on Helium. You just need to, you know, sort of provision it or do, or do whatever. Um, yep. So that's exciting. And then there's, you know, I was having this conversation with, with someone in the community on Discord and I, I said something controversial to them, which I think sort of blew their mind and also caused them to be concerned at the same time, which was that, I think all the best applications of Helium don't exist yet. Like, I, I think yes. 
all of the best stuff that the most valuable applications that we will see are only possible as a result of a network like this existing. And so they can't exist today, right? Like there is no, there is no venue for those things to be real. Um, and so I hope that that's true. Like I hope we start to see just like with the iPhone or the internet or any of those, like you would never would have imagined some of the applications that got, that got built um, on yeah. top of these platforms. And that's what I hope happens. Like I hope we sit, like every day when I see something on Twitter, I'm like, I had no idea someone was working on that. And I, and I, I hope we just keep seeing more and more of those that just are continually getting more and more valuable and, and more sort of consequential. I had a, I have a friend who uh, works at uh, King's College in London uh, on nuclear disarmament and he, he had got in touch with uh, one of your sales team I think at some point because he's he's one of the, one of the well he's he's talking about using blockchain as a means of being able to verify nuclear uh, weapon yeah. disassemblement and um, I think he kind of was like well I want to use this technology to be able to help dismantle nuclear weapons and and and, the, and, and your guy was like well there's a pretty big use case and it yeah. might not be quite perfect for what we're thinking about but but it's but it's but it is it's like it's the stuff that all of a sudden gets unlocked and possible when all of a sudden you've got really low cost and pretty ubiquitous coverage of these of these networks right um, yeah, the blockchain uh, part is yeah. is cool. Like, I mean there's a thing that we don't even really publicize or talk about anywhere near as much as as we should which is um, that all of the data that gets sent through the network can be verified to have actually happened, that the the way that it it did precisely, right? so, and that's so, what that, they, what they yeah. need, right? Is like they need all the parties to be able to see that everything got moved as they got right. said it got moved, and that it's verifiable and immutable. And I love why yeah. I don't even think I don't think we mentioned. I'm looking right now. I don't think we mentioned that anywhere on, on our site or in any. But it's like one of the coolest things because if if you sent like a GPS coordinate. Uh, you could go back and check that the coordinate wasn't changed. You can't see what it is, like because it's all encrypted. Yes. But you, you can tell that it was altered, and yes. and that's cool. And I don't think <laughs> I think we actually yeah we don't talk about that anywhere. Got to remember yep. to uh, yep. got to remember to improve that. Yeah, yeah, not at all. Um, and then the the in terms of cost. So you mentioned that there there are these things available. What's the kind of bill of material? So you, it's a dollar a year for data cost. What's the bill of material for transponders? And kind of where are they at now? Where do we think they'll be in sort of three to five years? Yeah, I mean, if you're not or super familiar with the electronics universe, it's like volume is just everything. Um, yeah. And so, you know, if you were to buy a single one of these chips, you know, like the LoRa chip that would go in the sensor, maybe it's five bucks for one. You know, if you if you were building a hundred thousand plus of the thing, it's probably more like fifty cents or, or something like that, or less less than a dollar. Um, right. And so it can get really cheap, you know. And and cellular chips can get really cheap too. But then you have to write quite complicated like firmware stack on top of the chip. Uh, and so what you end up doing, what most people end up doing when they're doing when they don't have a firmware team, is they buy a module which has the firmware on board, and then those start to get more expensive. Like those start to cost tens yep. of dollars. Um, but the LoRa WAN stack is is small and and relatively simple and it's open source, uh, so it's feasible that you could add LoRa to a product for under a dollar if you were if you were doing it in in reasonable volume, um, and so that's pretty good. I mean, it, like the, it just really depends what you're doing. But if you if you were sending you know CAN bus data off a bike, you know then you wouldn't need GPS and you would just need the the LoRa transmitter and an antenna and you know. That, that kind of stuff and so it can be really really cheap yeah yeah I mean that that that's just orders of magnitude different to, to yeah the things yeah that no it's, it's um, crazy Twilio and Particle um, when I talk to micromobility operators who are in the shared space or anybody who's looking for connectivity solutions at the moment they have been 
you know, Twilio and Particle, the, the, the sort of like the, the go-tos or co-module. Um, can you, like, have you got partnerships with them? Do, do they allow you to like integrate into their current stack? How do you see yourself positioning yourself around that around that universe at the moment? Yeah, we, we've had, I think, a, a handful of conversations um, with those guys. We would love to partner with them. I don't see us as competitive really in any, in any way there at, at all. Um, you know, so I, I think it would be great if you could manage your your fleet of helium devices through Twilio the same way you would, you know, SIM cards. Like we, we've, like I'm a fan of Twilio. I've used their, we use their SIM cards. Um, and I, I, what I would love to see is that helium is just like one of those kinds of like connectivity options that people t- start to take seriously. Um, and that's just starting to happen more and more as the network gets, you know, bigger and denser. Like I think people just thought we were some kind of idiots or just full of shit or whatever at the start of this because it just was an, an, an unbelievable sounding idea. Um, but now that the coverage is real, you know, you can go into like pretty much any of the top 40 cities in the U.S. and probably get a decent connection with a device. Um, now people are starting to like look very differently at, at us and what, what is possible. And so rather than like a thing that they just sort of laughed at, it's more like, okay, how do we partner with those guys? Or like, how do we use, use the network? Or, and the best example is the gateway, the Laura gateway companies. Like, I think we were just kind of a laughing stock to them uh, until they started to sell thousands upon thousands per hour of, of, you know, helium hotspots. And now all of the other companies are like, well, how do we, how do we start selling helium versions of our things? Cause we, we don't sell that many yes. in a year, you know? And, and so it's interesting. It just requires some momentum. Like no one believes you until it's there. And, and, you know, the crypto economic model was really the way to unlock that first part. Like how do you make it real, uh, real yeah. enough where people start to take it seriously. And I, I don't think it would be possible without the crypto incentive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the one part that I, I, I have a question about for, for Twilio and Particle is, is there, because there's margin in them when you've got a dollar fifty a month in, in line costs. Yeah. Is there no, if there's no margin in it for them in that regard, I wonder if they're as economically incentivized to be able to deploy it. Yeah, I mean, it just, it, I think it depends how much the, the companies, it depends how much their customers value the sort of management service that Twilio provides, right? Like, I think that's really the question, right? If you're, you know, imagine you're any of these applications, you're a bike company and you want to deploy 500,000 bikes. Like, managing a fleet that big is is a challenge, right? Like, you, you need good tooling in order to do that. And um, that's where I think someone like Twilio is is best placed, right? Like, they've, got, they've gotten years and years of, like, expertise on, like, how to do this. In the in the telco in the SIM card sort of world, uh, or the text message world world before that, and so it would be the same sort of thing. Like they, presumably they believe they could charge a premium on top of the like raw cost of using the network, which is extremely low, uh, and that their customers would be interested in paying it because they already tw- trust Twilio. It's probably part of their stack already. Maybe they use it for cellular. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing where I think they could figure out how to add value. And again, it's like the cost of using the network is so low that I think there's a lot of room for like value added stuff on top, assuming that you're added, adding value. If you're just, you know, if you're just providing access to the network, then you'd, you know, you don't really need Twilio. You can just use the yeah, open source tool totally. directly, but presumably yeah. pe- people would need, you know, the ability to like manage large fleets of stuff. Well, I feel like that's also an opportunity for, 
anybody yep. who's in the who's in the space right now and wants to build stuff like that so oh exactly. uh, look this is I, i'm aware we're kind of uh, running up against time so I, like i just want to say thank you so much this has been the most fascinating chat i've been wanting to have this conversation for a long time so i really appreciate you yeah uh, you indulging me uh and, thanks for having uh, me yeah for the yeah, for the audience who want to um, find out a bit more, so uh, I, I, you're on Twitter. Um, yeah. How would they find you? Yeah, so I mean, the, the easiest thing is to follow everything Helium related. So we've got helium.com. We're at Helium on Twitter. Uh, if you want to get into the code and stuff, github, github.com slash Helium. Uh, pretty much anything Helium, like we probably own at this point. Um, so that's easy, by far the best way. Like we're pretty active in all those places. Excellent. Great. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to having you uh, back on the podcast probably in, uh, you know, six months or a year or something like that to just talk about um, hopefully some exciting announcements you have in the in the uh, owned e-bike space or uh, micromobility space in general. Um, but look, thank you so much, Amir. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you.